Welcome to Immigrants' Journeys. Imagine leaving your home country to settle in a foreign land. What would that feel like? How would you make the transition, and how might that experience change you? The guests on this show share their perspectives and opinions related to their immigrant journeys. Listen to find out what challenges they overcame and how they made the transition. Growing up with immigrant parents can bring challenges as well as blessings. In this episode, Martin shares how having immigrant parents gave him an appreciation for languages, which prompted him to move to Germany and later on to Estonia. Martin's mother was from Germany, and his father grew up in the U.S. in a Hungarian household. I went to college with Martin in Germany, and we reminisce about our adventures during this episode. The intro music is performed by Reimstein. The song is called Engel, meaning angel, released around 1997, and was written by Christoph Dum Schneider, Dr. Christian Lorenz, Oliver Riedl, Paul Landers, Richard Z. Kruspe, and Till Lindemann, pr- produced by Jakob Helna and Rammstein. The band is from Berlin, and I feel it captures the mood of a particular art event that Martin and I stumbled upon in Berlin around the same time frame. I hope you enjoy it. To learn more about this show, visit www.immigrantsjourneys.fm. Now, let's listen to Martin's Immigrant Journey. Martin, thank you very much for joining this show. I really appreciate your time. Glad to be here. The purpose of this podcast is really to explore the immigrant experience and discuss immigrant journeys. My family's from Cuba, so this has become a sort of self-exploration, if you will, really thinking about heritage and all the stories that my family has told me. I realized there are a lot of people in my life that are either immigrants or children of immigrants. And so... I just got this idea. I want to share these stories. I want to capture them. I know that you're a child of immigrants. So maybe tell me a little bit about your parents. Where were they from and where did you grow up? Well, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in a place called Chillum. My mother was actually born in Germany. My father was born in the United States. Both of his parents came from Hungary. Or at the time, I guess, as part of the... Habsburg Empire, but he was the first one in his family to be born in the United States. Both of them obviously grew up in a foreign environment. One thing that was different between my father and his brother and sister was that they spoke Hungarian at home, but he did not. He was the youngest of the children, and by that point, his family was primarily speaking English, even amongst themselves. He learned it. Eventually, he taught himself how to speak Hungarian. Uh, Something that both my parents had was an appreciation for languages and foreign cultures. And they wanted to maintain what they did know in their original or foreign languages from their heritage. And that was something I think that they passed down to my sisters and me, that we knew where we were from. We appreciated different cultures. As I said, we grew up in Washington, D.C., where you have abundance of opportunities to interact with foreign cultures, whether it's with the embassies or the museums or the restaurants. And that was something that 
our family took advantage of. And I would say that's one of the nicest things that my parents instilled in us as kids is that we see a broader world. We appreciate differences and we know that not everybody's the same, but we all have similarities and common backgrounds, nevertheless. And what language or languages did you speak at home? At home, we only spoke English. There were a few phrases, predominantly in German, that we would say just in like If somebody was cooking, we would say that the water's boiling and things like that. I think it was more the cultural element, the way we celebrated Christmas or birthdays or greetings, things like that. It wasn't really the language that was spoken at the house, which is actually kind of ironic because, as I said, both of my parents had an appreciation for foreign languages. And... Both of my parents speak English, German, and Russian fluently. As an adult, I always thought that would have been a perfect environment to learn three unrelated languages, and it would have made traveling through Europe that much easier for me as an adult. I would have learned a Romance language probably in school. French or Spanish were always offered, but then I would have also had a Germanic language and a Slavic language, and it would have sort of completed the bulk of European travels. In hindsight, that's something I wish my parents had done differently. I love my parents, don't get me wrong, but that's something I think was a missed opportunity on their part. To be honest, I think it was more on my father's side because I think he was a bit of a perfectionist when it came to languages and he felt comfortable in his native English. And even though he spoke German and Russian fluently, I think he was always worried about making mistakes and then teaching us something that wasn't quite accurate. To be honest, you learn from mistakes, and I think that would have still been a good time to learn the languages. Santiago, you and I, we've both of us learned German, and there have been times when we've just conversed in German, and both of us had shortcomings. But the difficulties that I had German at the time were different from the ones that you had at the time. So both of us were nevertheless learning from each other and improving our German, even though both of us could have easily said the same thing in English much more efficiently. And I think that stumbling through life, whether it's languages or experiences, teaches you things. And I think that was a missed opportunity to be taught those languages. I grew up speaking Spanish at home, so I think I had almost the opposite experience that you did. I think it does go back to that perfectionist mentality. My father picked up the language more so than my mother. But even so, I think my father was a little bit embarrassed to speak English with his kids right? Because it was not his first language. But I think I did benefit from having spoken Spanish at home. Like my cousins, they spoke English at home and their Spanish is terrible. (laughs) But their parents' English was way better than my parents. So I think it's just kind of give and take. It's interesting also to hear you talk about when we were learning German and how we learned from each other. I remember we made a decision. All right, we're in Germany. We're going to speak German as much as possible. Having that mindset of doing it, even though it's hard, really hard, stumbling, being in the middle of a conversation and having to go to uh, a dictionary to find a word can be very frustrating. But to your point, it's those times where you really learn. And those are the words that you tend to remember because it took a lot of effort to learn. And both of us noticed how a lot of the foreign exchange students when we were in Germany would stick with others in their nationality, maybe even from the same university. So they may have been studying in Germany. They were still an enclave of Brits or French nationals who were then amongst themselves and not really 
improving their German proficiency or even experiencing the local cultures. I think the two of us got along really well because we were there to assimilate or to take in everything that we could. We, we saw that as an opportunity to, to get this exposure and we ran with it. For us, it wasn't just going abroad or getting away from family or whatever reasons people decide to go away for college. But for us, we wanted to, that was our destination. We wanted to go there. We wanted to be there and we wanted to experience it. And I think in hindsight, that was one of the best things we did. I agree. I noticed with many people, they tend to speak whatever language they speak together first. If a couple meets in one place and they, they speak Spanish together, but then they move someplace else and all their friends are speaking English. Of course, they'll speak with their friends in English, but amongst themselves, they'll still speak Spanish. Same thing with us. We knew each other before we went to Germany. It could have been very easy for us just to simply revert to English because that was the common ground we had already established. But we made that definitive break to switch over to German and build on that. Actually, that was one of the nicer memories I have of our time over there is just picking up vocabulary from you, a non-native speaker, and you doing the same for me. It's like, well, wait a minute, what was that word that you used? And then we'd explain it. Together, we would improve each other, even though neither one of us were native speakers. Right. And because we, both of us lived in dormitories where it was mixed foreign exchange students and Germans. And I think they appreciated the fact that we were conversing amongst each other in German, that, that we were one of them, even though we were guests. And yeah. I think that that endeared us to them. We would practice, like you said, our German and, and especially on pronunciation. And I remember several Germans going, oh, your German is so good. And I'd look at them and say, oh, yours too. <laughs> You know, like, well, of course, like that's the purpose, <laughs> right? Like that's why we're here. <laughs> and the nice thing about it is it paid off. I've gone back since then and I've had people surprised that I spoke German with, with the accent I have. It's not a typical American accent. And I've had multiple people say, how come you speak German the way you do? And it always comes down to is uh, I took my time here seriously because I knew it, it it was going to be temporary. And I was here for the right reasons, I think. Is there anything that you'd like to say to your friends uh, back in Germany in German? Ich möchte nur Jürgen sagen, dass ich, ich hätte ihnen uh, gerne mehr Pommes gegeben, aber meine Chefin ist hinter mir gestanden und ich dürfte nicht. <laughs> for me, the reason why I wanted to do the study abroad was maybe a lot of it had to do with trying to understand my parents, right? What is it like to go to a foreign country Although I knew the language, I was prepared and I was studying, I didn't have to support a family, et cetera. I still wanted to push myself outside of my comfort zone to try to maybe understand my parents' situation a little bit better. Do you feel that you had a similar reason for wanting to study abroad? I don't know if it was to understand them better, but just to appreciate my heritage a little bit more. As I said, we didn't speak German at home or more Hungarian at all. But we did know the, the traditions. We knew the cuisine. Christmas and holidays were always along the, the Germanic traditions. And I guess just getting over there was a way to, to extend that. Growing up, my grandparents still lived in Germany, at least when I was younger. And I got to visit them. So I had been to Germany prior to college. 
but it was always as a child. It was with my parents on a vacation. And I think when you're young, you're just, you're happy to be with your parents on a vacation. It doesn't matter where it is. It's just, you're having a good time. Once you get to adolescence and definitely by the time you're in college, you recognize the differences and you can appreciate different cultures. Things aren't the same where you live as they are elsewhere. And I think that's something that as a child, you may not recognize, but as an adult, you feel firsthand. I think that was the push for me to learn German. I had the appreciation of languages just because of my parents, but then this was a way to say, okay, this is where I came from. So let me go explore that a little bit. When the study abroad program ended, you ended up staying in Germany and essentially immigrating to Germany. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience of when you decided to stay? What prompted that? It was supposed to be the year, two semesters, but I stuck around. And at the end of the year, I think I'd already made my decision ahead of time that I was going to stay as long as I could. On one hand, it was easy because I felt at home there. I will say this, it was an easy transition moving to Germany for me. Certain things were completely alienating to me, but at the same time, I didn't feel out of place. So the fact that I wanted to stay longer wasn't something I was worried about. I guess my biggest concern was how to do it. Because as an exchange student, you're connected to your home university. They take care of all the paperwork, more or less. We knew where we would be staying. Everything in the background was taken care of for us. We still had to go to classes and take exams and things like that. But we didn't have to look for housing. We didn't have to worry about filling out forms and the like. And in my second year over there, that wasn't the case. I actually had to register as an official student, not as an exchange student. And I had to take an entrance exam and I had to get residency. I had to get a work permit. I had to go to the police station and register, but it was things that I was willing to do. It's, I will say this, it wasn't easy all the time, simply because, uh, finding housing isn't always straightforward, especially when we were there. We lived near what had been the old East and West German border. And this is right after the wall came down. And a year or two before the wall came down, both of us had been over there. And the town where we lived, it was no problem finding a place to stay. But once the wall came down, it was one of the first larger cities across the border. And a lot of East Germans came there just for opportunities. And... By the early 90s, which is when this was, housing became a little bit more restricted. There weren't as, as many apartments available. And yeah, you just had to dance your way around it. I was fortunate enough to find somebody who was himself going abroad for a couple of months, and I could just sublet from him. But it was on the outskirts of town in a basement apartment where I didn't know anybody. So... There were challenges, but again, I was willing to do it. And I have no regrets at all doing it. To me, that second year was, was proof that I was in my second home, if that makes sense. It got to the point where I felt like I belonged. People accepted me as though I did belong. Obviously, spending a couple of years there, you, you get proficient in the language enough that if you try, you can blend in. And for me, that was always a goal. Even when I travel now, I don't want to stand out. I want to be somebody who looks maybe like he's not 
from there, but somebody who's lived there for a while. And definitely that second year, that was the case. Um, but it was also interesting having to find jobs. I worked in the cafeteria on campus. I got up early and chopped up food and washed dishes after, after lunch. I also worked in a, a cafe in a train station, washing dishes. It wasn't beneath me. It was something that yeah, I was willing to do to continue my dream. And my dream at that time was to spend time overseas. You alluded to a little earlier some of the maybe culture shocks or some of the things that were a little bit off-putting. What are some of those that you recall that were, again, culture shocks as an American moving, immigrating to Germany? In Germany, okay, it wasn't maybe too many shocks, but it was getting acclimated. For example, if you want to go shopping, you better do it early in the evening. <laughs> Stores just weren't open after 6.30. And same thing on the weekends. If you wanted to go grocery shopping, you had to do it on Saturday because Sunday you, you were out of luck. And, you know, little things like that you, you had to acclimate yourself to. One thing I did really appreciate is no matter where I was, it, you could live without a car. The mass transit networks were sufficient enough that you could get around and not feel like you're missing out on anything. Schedules were readily available. If you needed to get someplace, you knew how to get there and what routes to take and when it left. Of course, there are going to be hiccups along the way, but for the most part, I never felt like I needed a car there. And on those times when I did, renting them on the weekends was an option. It's sort of like people I know who live in New York, they can get around without a car. It's actually a burden to have a car because then you have to deal with parking and insurance and other issues, but you can live easily enough without one. And that's one thing that, that I really appreciated. And when I came back to the States, I was hoping to continue that and it just wasn't an option. What prompted your coming back to the States? Getting married? <laughs> As we've been talking you know, the whole time, is our early 20s, I lived overseas about seven out of eight years. I came back for one year to finish up a degree at college. I considered trying to get a degree in Germany, but I would have had to start from scratch, and it would have taken me maybe, let's say, five or six years to, to get a degree in Germany. Or I could come back to the States and get a bachelor's degree in two semesters. For me, that was the better option. But even when I came back, it was with the intent of going back to Europe after graduation. Now, tell me about that. So you've been in Germany now two years. You've kind of found your new home. You come back to the United States. How did your perspective or perceptions of things change? And then what were maybe some culture shocks now? When I came back, I, I flew to New York and then had to transfer down to Washington. When I was at Kennedy, I had to get from one terminal to the other, the international terminal to the domestic terminal, and you had to catch a shuttle bus. And I just remember sitting in the shuttle bus and two things jumped out at me. One was just looking at the cars. There were cars everywhere, but not only was there more traffic, but they were bigger cars. Just living where I was, in Europe, even if you had a car, it was modest in terms of size. And here they were much larger in comparison. And the other thing that I remember distinctly from that just shuttle ride between the two terminals was there was a young Asian man. 
I had the impression this was his first time in the States. He had the bus driver who was, I think, Puerto Rican, and somebody in the back who was helping with luggage who was of Jamaican descent. And he could not understand their local accent (laughs) with their national dialects thrown in. And every time the bus stopped, he would reach for his, his luggage and the two of them would just yell at him, no man, not here, and keep going. <laughs> and I could just read from his expression that he was questioning the last 10 years of his English language in school and not being able to understand these two men. And part of me appreciated that because what you learn in school is not what you, you hear on the streets. And you really have to immerse yourself with the local speech just to pick up on the dialect and the slang terms that people are using. And at that point, I realized, yeah, I'm home still. It's, I liked being in Germany, but I still have part of me that appreciated being in the States. And that was the first hour of me being home after, I guess, two years abroad. Do you feel that there were some new parts of you that were German? Yeah, I will say this. When I lived in Germany that time, I started to dream in German. And for me, that was a hurdle. That's when I felt like this is now me. And I could have imagined staying in Germany and basically immigrating back to where my mom had come from. And I know people over there who told me later on, they they thought I would find a German woman and settle down over there. No regrets. (laughs) But it didn't work out that way. Right. So the way I guess it did work out is you eventually did go back to Europe How long did you stay in the United States? I came back for about a year. I was the two semesters. And as soon as I graduated, I was itching to get back. During the summer, a a couple of us, my my girlfriend at the time and you, we made a trip over to Germany and, and the Czech Republic. And as I recall, you were actually, you were working in Germany at the time again. I met up with you over there, and then you had some free time. The three of us traveled around and made some rounds and just had a good time because we brought in similar perspectives. Just this whole concept of going back to your roots or being a foreigner in, a, in your own land, if that makes sense. That was us. The places that we were going were places that we felt was part of our home. I remember that trip. I remember her, your now wife going to her family's farm. And I remember walking through a current plantation in in the middle of the Czech Republic and just looking up at the sky and looking around me and just going, this is amazing. It was just a a really transformational trip just to see her go to her roots after having seen you do something similar in Germany. Do you think that that experience helped convince her to, to go back with you to Europe? Maybe to a degree, we were young. If we're going to do anything like this, now was the time. My attitude was, I haven't settled yet. I don't have a family. I don't have a mortgage. If I'm going to go out and do it, this is the perfect time to do it. And I figured I would get married at some point. I figured I would be a father at some point. But it didn't have to be when I was 23. Do you know what I mean? And I figured if I'm going to do it, now's the time to do it. And I think she was in a similar boat where she was willing to do it. He too was young enough that her life wasn't cemented in front of her. She was looking for a change. I think she was working. She graduated already as well. But she could 
walk away from that and try something new. And the fact going back to the old country, it was an option, I think, made it a little bit easier. Where did you end up settling in Europe this time? The next place I called home was Estonia. The reason why that came about was a year or two years earlier, it was still under the Soviet Union. And as the wall was falling and then the Soviet Union was collapsing, things were changing. My contact, it was actually through my father. As I said, he was always interested in foreign culture and contacts. If somebody had an accent, he would gravitate toward them and start up conversation. And he was talking to somebody who had connections to Estonia, which was actually one of his interests because it's distantly related to Hungarians, which was his background. They knew of a private university which was starting in Estonia. It was actually the first private university in that state. It had a partnership with a university in Wisconsin. They didn't know how successful it would be, and they were hoping if they could get 75 students for the first semester, they could make a go of it. But I think they had 135 applicants who were accepted. And because of this, they had more demand and they needed to hire additional staff. Even though I only had at that time a bachelor's degree, they were willing to bring me aboard to work with some of the students whose English wasn't necessarily proficient enough to take the business classes that they needed to graduate. So in effect, I was a tutor at this privately run university in Estonia. And I loved it. I appreciate, as I said, cultures and history. And one thing about going there is you knew what you were looking at wasn't going to be that way 10 years later or five years later even. Things would get better or they would get worse, but they would definitely change. And for me, that was appealing. I've always felt at home in Northern Europe anyway, just because of the mentality. They have a reputation of being cold or distant, but the way I see that is they're just reserved around people until you get to know them. And once you do know them and become their friend, you're their friend for life. The fact that I was trying to learn their language made them welcome me even more because I'm convinced for many people I was the first foreigner who tried to learn Estonian. I'm going to put you in the spot. So Estonian, what's a common like hello? Tere tere. It would be hello. Tere tere is hello. I was going to ask you to do a shout out for any Estonian listeners that might be out there. <laughs> Kuson hulumaya. But we'll see what your, your listenership comes up as a, def, as a translation of that. The interesting thing about the university where I worked is because it had a partnership with an American university, the students who graduated from the Estonian one had the opportunity to um, take additional classes and get a second degree from their American counterpart. For many, especially as the social climate was changing, that was an attractive offer. And all of them at the time were, were taking business classes. It was a business degree. And the fact that they could get in two degrees and one of them from an American university was very appealing to them. To do so, obviously, you have to be proficient in, in, in English. That was the language of business at the university. All classes were done in English, not Estonian or Lithuanian or Latvian or Russian or Finnish. There were 
students from many different countries there. But the language of operation was in English. When some of them came here to finish up that second degree, I think some of them, as we had in our experiences overseas, felt comfortable and were willing to stick around. That's a great testament to your tutelage in coaching them on their, on their language. I would not change that experience for anything. That, that was a wonderful time. And it's also a difficult time. When we were there, I think it was the coldest winter in like 70 years or something. The Baltic Sea froze over and we could have walked over to Finland if we wanted to. There, there was even a ferry ship that, that got stuck in the ice in the Baltic Sea and couldn't get free until like, the ice melted in the springtime. And you don't have the luxuries. I was living in housing that many people wouldn't want to live in. But for me, I was living a dream. And I wasn't earning much money. In, in fact, by American standards, I was way below the poverty line. But the, the cost of living was much, much lower over there as well. So I wasn't starving. I wasn't cold. I, was, I could live within my means over there. I remember when I visited you in Tallinn, in Estonia, some of the things that to me were kind of a culture shock or jarring. Part of it was kind of like going back in time, which is very similar to our travels through the Eastern Bloc countries before the, the wall came down. Or it's almost like you went into a time war. The things that I remember is where you lived in that, uh, I guess it was government provided housing because everything's, you know, communist up until a couple of years before you moved. You know, everything was like everybody had their assigned cell, if you will, in this apartment complex. And I remember the elevator either was only a one person or it was broken or there was no light bulb. You know, it was that kind of thing. And I remember going downstairs, going up the street to the grocery store, which was not always open. And when it was, it was rather barren. There was not a lot to purchase. Can you tell me a little bit about those kinds of experiences? What were some of the things that you noticed or witnessed that were just very different than American culture? Some of the things that jump out immediately were telephones. Obviously, when the Soviet states became independent, they got away from the Soviet currency. And in Estonia, what that meant is telephone booths were free. So if I wanted to call somebody from a payphone, it was kind of oxymoronic because you didn't have to pay. You could just go in the, into the telephone booth and dial the number and it would ring. This was a transition period. Over time, they were going to be swapped out. But when I moved there, that was still the case. Yeah, I could just call up somebody for free, more or less. And also, in my apartment where I lived, if I was talking with somebody on the phone, sometimes it would merge with another conversation that somebody else was having. And I don't know if they were in our building or if it was somewhere else, but I remember talking to one of my students one time, and it got to the point where the other conversation was actually louder than our conversation. Basically, they were like, two-party conversations that were kind of crossing over to each other. It wasn't quite like a party line in the old sense that we had over here, but it was similar that you could listen in on other people's conversations. And that was one of the things. It's You knew that wasn't going to stay that way. And you figure over time, that's going to get better. And it has. Estonia is a success story in many ways. But at the time, it was just making do with what you can. As you said about the apartments, it's you did with what you could. You know what I mean? Like some people would close in their balconies so that they'd have like a little bit more space. 
turn it into a greenhouse, for example. A lot of people packed in together. It was your high rise. I think our building had 13 floors and we were one of maybe a hundred buildings within a square kilometer. <laughs> but for me, that's what I wanted. There were other people that lived closer to where we worked and I was on the other side of town. And in retrospect, that's the way it should have been because I would appreciate that where some of my colleagues wouldn't. They'd want to be closer to downtown, closer to work and not have to deal with real life living, if that makes sense. Right. One of the things I've always liked doing is experiencing what the locals experience. If that's hopping on the bus where you don't really fit anymore and you just have to wed yourself in, that's fine. If it's standing outside on icy sidewalks just because nobody can clear it or it takes the initiative to clear it, so be it. If that means waiting in line for at the grocery store for things that may or may not be available, that's fine because that's how the locals have to experience it. And that's what I want to do when I go abroad. I don't want to bring my country or my expectations with me. I want to feel what the locals do. It's like mentally filming all daily activities. And for me, there's value in that. There's something personal. When people go on vacation, they may have a checklist of things they want to see or museums they want to visit or sites that they have to make sure they take photos at. I have that too, but I'm also just as happy if I can spend time just taking in the locals. What do they do differently that we don't do here? I've been places where I've seen dozens of people sweeping the sidewalks in front of their stores with homemade brooms that you'd never see here, but over there, that was typical. Just walking on a street, you notice that their drainage is different than ours. They have a recessed curb that you could actually drive your tires into if you got too close to the side of the road, but it works for them. Just street signs, you look at it and say, why do they have a street sign that says this when we don't? And it's just because you know, slight, slight differences in the rules of the road exist. And it's not that one is better than the other, but one works better there than it does elsewhere. How do these experiences shape who you are today? I would say the best way is that you realize that it's not always the way you expect things to be. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's If you go someplace, you expect them to pay with different currency or you expect the food to be different or you expect the language to be different. So little things like fashion should also be different or attitudes or traditions. They should all be slightly different. We have common ground, but we're also not the same. We're not a, we're not homogenous. I think people have similar experiences no matter where they live, but we all don't live the same way. And if you go someplace expecting things to be the way you want them, you're more likely to be disappointed than if you go someplace to see how things are. If you go with preconceived notions or expectations or worse demands, you're not going for the right reasons when you go abroad or even traveling domestically. Different places have different values, different traditions, different influences. And I think that that should be appreciated. Did you, in Estonia, we went downtown and just with no expectation, we didn't know. And there was some kind of pagan ritual festival taking place where 
they were enacting throwing dead bodies out of these, you know, almost thousands of years old town square houses. And they gathered all these, you know, fake dead bodies and they made a big bonfire. And it was kind of a reenactment of the Black Plague and all that. And we were just sitting there like, what is going on? (laughs) But it was wonderful. It's been 30 years or whatever since then. And I think both of us still have fond memories of that. It definitely left an impression and it was a positive impression. Absolutely. On a related note, I was talking about how I appreciate going someplace because of the differences. But I've also seen others, often Americans, but not always. I mean, I think it was just because I knew the Americans who had an expectation of what they wanted when they went abroad and it wasn't being met and they had a difficult time. And I can think of multiple instances in different countries where they gave up. They they just didn't want to be there anymore and weren't going to wait it out. They were just going to go back. And it's unfortunate because that's an opportunity that not everybody gets. And if you're doing it for community service or job or just credits toward your degree, take advantage of it. Live it to the fullest. Don't be disappointed if it doesn't match everything you have at home just in a different time zone. If you had a time machine and you could go back to a younger version of yourself, what would you tell him and when? As I said, we were there. Actually, we straddled before and after the wall came down. And what I would tell myself would be do more earlier on because you don't know how things are going to change. I just remember a, a couple friends were going to Berlin for the weekend. And I had some things in the town where we were planned for that weekend, so I didn't go. But I told myself, it'll be there forever, <laughs> kind of thing. And you know, Berlin was a special place you know, in the Cold War. And in hindsight, that would have been one of the last times to go to what was East Berlin for me. And yeah, I don't want to say I regret not going, but it was a missed opportunity. And I think just all the development mints that took place in 1989 with the the Cold War coming to an end, more or less, was unexpected. We were there a couple months before that. And then come November 9th, the walls opened. And like everybody else, we're like, we didn't see this coming. Three weeks earlier, if you said that the wall is coming down in our lifetime, we probably would have said, no way. It's been there forever. In hindsight, it's been down longer than it's been up. (laughs) Because it came down 30 three years ago, and it was up for, what, 20, 28? That's, a, that's what I would tell tell a younger version of me. Take advantage of the time. Don't feel like you have to come back right away. Extend a trip as long as you can. If I could go back farther than that, I would have tried to persuade my parents to speak different languages at home. I did learn German, and I think that's my best second language by far, but I learned that initially in school. And then I continued on in, in when I went to college. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go abroad was just to make that better because you can only get so far by learning it in a school setting. I think you actually have to be immersed in it to feel proficient. And that's that was one of my goals. But it would have been nice, as I said earlier in the conversation, if I had that as a foundation and not something that I built later on. 
I think now you can get away with traveling. You can have an app that translates everything for you, even does audio. So that you can just say what you want to ask somebody and then it'll translate it for you. And then you can have a conversation spontaneously. And with us, it was a lot more effort. There were times when I would be traveling in a country where I didn't speak their language, but I knew a little bit of a related language. So I would just use some pidgin Slavic and try to get my ideas across to the person who was offering me a ride somewhere. And it worked. Yeah, it was definitely a different time. I mean, I remember just even on a superficial level, I think it was, it must have been after the wall came down. It was right around then when we were in Prague. And just, I remember the night sky was beautiful. Like you could actually see it because there was not a lot of electricity in the city. There was no neon. There wasn't a single McDonald's sign. None of that. There was just some gas lighting on some of the bridges. And it was a very romantic kind of feel. And now I think you look at something like that and a lot of Americans be like, oh, that's so dangerous. It's so dark and like, you know, but it wasn't like the, the energy there was very trusting. It was very, I don't know how to describe it, but I never felt at risk or in danger, even though sometimes we were in cities or towns where we didn't know the language, we didn't have any money. We were just kind of passing through. I remember when the two of us were in Prague, a little bit more than a year after the Velvet Revolution. We just wanted to take a look at the opera house because we heard it was worth seeing. And we just asked this elderly man if he could direct us to it. We didn't speak Czech. He didn't speak German or English. But I think he spoke a little French. <laughs> so you and he were talking and we thought he would just take us to the next street corner and say, go this way for two blocks and then look on your left or something. But instead, he personally escorted us to the opera house. He went out of his way. It was only a couple blocks away, but he wanted us to make sure that we got there. And it was a sense of pride for him. We were among the first foreigners to come there and he wanted to show off his picturesque city. And he appreciated this new change that, that was unfolding. As I said, things weren't going to stay the same. They'd get better or worse, but they weren't going to stay the same. And I think he was happy that now was one of those changes where people could experience what he sees on a daily basis and could take pride in it. And I remember we went there and, you know, for us, a ticket to the opera was not outrageously expensive. And we bought tickets for ourselves for a performance. I remember it was 18 cents. Do you remember what it was? I think it was Mozart's Magic Flute. Mar Marriage of Figaro. Oh, okay. But, but we offered, because of the price, we offered a ticket to him as well as our as thanks for showing us where it was. And he just shook his head. He's like, no, I'm just glad you're here kind of thing. And you talked about being in Estonia and I got that same feeling there. And in most places in, in, in Eastern Europe, I saw that, which, which is why I liked going toward the East whenever I could, because that's where things were in flux. Some of my classmates would say, you never go to, to, to France or England. And I said, well, Paris and London will pretty much be Paris and London in 20 years. But, you know, Prague or Budapest or Sofia, they're going to be different in five years or 10 years. 
And I said, I'd like to see this change. And to me, that's, that was appealing. I think that's, at least from my perspective, like what the heart of this whole conversation is just appreciating how things are and the differences that there are. I also think one of the themes, you know, as I play back some of these memories is the generosity, right? That man that escorted us to the opera house, even in Zagreb, you know, at the time, Yugoslavia was, was breaking apart. There was civil war. And here we are, you know, two kids with backpacks surrounded by a bunch of people with machine guns on the street at random places, searching your bags, asking you for your papers and really not knowing, like, are they going to respect the law when they see my passport? Are they just going to take it? <laughs> and now you could track somebody fairly easily. You could send somebody a text and find out how they're doing immediately. And back then it's like, you send a postcard and in two weeks, if you're lucky, it'll show up at the destination and they'll say, oh, well, two weeks ago he was in Prague, <laughs> but who knows where he is now? <laughs> Martin, there were times when we didn't even know where we were. But that was the fun. It was discovering things. It was. We could probably do an entire episode of our travel style. Maybe we'll call that one starvation tour. But again, I don't know if it's, if that's even possible anymore. I think Just because it was a different world. The spirit of it. Is the spirit is still there. That's true. I think it's actually making a conscious decision to do things like maybe not use your smartphone. For example, a few years ago, my wife and I, we did the river cruise from Nuremberg to Budapest. And once we got to Budapest, I kind of had a paper map and I went a little bit more old school. My wife was very trusting of me. <laughs> I give her a lot of credit. She doesn't know your sense of direction, I see. Hey, my sense of direction is really good. At least it is now. And do you remember what how we used to describe people that were generous or took us in one way or the other, whether it was just conversations or gave us a ride or whatever. Do you remember how we called them? We called them hope for humanity. Yeah, true. And that was like our goal, at least at the time. It was like, we hope later in life, people will look at us and say, we want to be, end up like they did. You know what I mean? And it's finding the common good in people. It's just going someplace out your home, just outside your comfort zone, whatever it is. You will still find people who will look after you or that not everybody's out to get you. There, there are people like that. I'm not going to say I didn't have bad experiences over there, but I would say I hold dear the ones that were the good experiences. I didn't let the bad ones really taint my, my time over there. I think what we've, at least what I've tried to convey is that, yeah, I look back on this with fond memories and I wish it could go on forever. It doesn't mean that everything went, went smoothly. That's not the case. But there are a lot more good memories than bad ones by far. I would agree with that. To a certain extent, it has gone on forever. You continue to travel. You continue to go to Europe and other places. Sounds like the way you travel now is very different than maybe the way you would have traveled had you not lived abroad. You talk about just sitting in a park and observing and really kind of just trying to blend in. Where else have you traveled to that's really pushed you outside your comfort zone? Maybe that you didn't speak the language after you came back and resettled in the U.S.? I don't know about comfort zone because once you've done what we've done, <laughs> going to places where they speak a different language, use a different alphabet, we end up sleeping on a park bench. <laughs> it's, you can't get any worse than that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, the way I travel now, I still like going to places that are off the beaten path. One of the more memorable places is I went to Central Asia a couple years ago. I wanted to get to Samarkand. That was 
the place that I wanted to see because I'd always seen pictures of it and I could never visualize how that was laid out in person. It looked like a studio set with just, you have the madrasas, you have the Registan, but there's no scenery behind it. What's behind the camera? Where's the street? Where are the people living? What is this? And that was a place that I'd always wanted to take a look at. So I went to Uzbekistan a couple of years ago and I've kept in touch with some of the people that were also on this trip. And one of them made a comment when I got together with them later on that I was always wandering off doing my own things. And I didn't know what to make of that because I said, no, I was always with the group whenever we were doing things. I was always there. And he said, no, you were. But after that or before that, you were off wandering around by yourself, experiencing you know, the, the local atmosphere. Like I'd get up early in the morning just to get out before breakfast to spend an hour at the market. Or after dinner, I would go out just to see what the nightlife would be like. And I didn't even realize I was doing that. But when he said that, I thought about like the places where we went to visit. And it was a checklist of, yes, I did that here. I did that in the next town, the next city. <laughs> and I guess that's a, take, a carryover from when I was younger and traveling. I knew my time elsewhere overseas was limited. And I just wanted to take in as much as I could. And I wasn't going to sleep in every day. I wasn't going to get it wasted at night and then get drunk and then not remember anything. That's not me at all. It's, as I said, we didn't have cell phones back then. So I wanted to take in all the memories I could and have them leave an impression that way. We did have cameras, but you know, you don't know until your vacation is over if you actually got a good shot or if your finger's in the picture or if it's in focus or the bus drove in front of the thing you're trying to take a picture of. And now it's like, yeah, you just take a dozen photos on your phone and then you delete a couple if they look bad or you just keep them all, whatever, but at least you have it. And you know right away if it's something that you want to retake or not. And that was the thing that I guess it's similar from my travel experiences back then and now is that I try to have the attitude that I may never be coming back. So I don't want to miss anything while I'm here. And if you just do the, the touristy checklist, you're going to miss out a lot of the flavor. What's next? Do you have your eyes set on another destination? A couple places, but because of the situation with Russia the past year, I think they're on hold indefinitely. I, mean, I do want to go to the Caucasus. And one of the areas I wanted to go to was Nagorno-Karabakh, which is disputed area between Armenia and Azerbaijan. At the moment, it just doesn't seem like it's practical. Same thing with, I was hoping to do a trip that went to Moldova and then Odessa and Transnistria. Romania and Moldova, I can still do easily enough. But, you know, the breakaway region of Transnistria, I don't know. And Odessa is probably not practical, let's put it that way. Having said that, in 92, I went to Croatia. That's when the war was going on. So I don't know. But, you know, I have different priorities now. I have a family. And I think that does make a difference. Anything else you want to share? I would just recommend somebody doing as much as they can while they can, because life is short. And down the road, you may not be in a position to, to take advantage of it. And if you do travel, then keep in mind you're a guest. 
and know what the local norms are and don't be arrogant about it. If you may not agree with something that's done or you may not understand why things are done a certain way or you may not even be aware of it initially, but take it in and don't be arrogant, I guess is the bottom line. Go in with an open mind. You don't have to be convinced to do things a different way necessarily once you come home, but appreciate the differences, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. As an immigrant, both to Germany and to Estonia, what are some tips that you could give to immigrants in general when they're first trying to acclimate or assimilate? It, it depends on your personality, but f for me, it's always been trying to fit in. To me, it was, it, it was always an accomplishment if somebody legitimately asked me for directions when I lived somewhere, because that meant that I looked like I knew what I was doing, where I was going, and then I fit in. I may not look Italian, for example, but if somebody in Italy came up to me and was asking where something was, it was always a compliment. It could also be a scam, but, and I do have stories like that as well, but, but I always got the impression people appreciate if you appreciate them, so it, it, whether it's their homeland or their occupation or their upbringing. It just have some understanding that not everybody is cut from the same cloth. It doesn't mean that somebody's better or worse. I don't like the word nationalism per se because it has a bad connotation, but I think you should be proud of what your upbringing is or what your heritage is, as long as you don't think that it's better than everybody else. Both you and I are Americans. You know, that's our upbringing. That's our cultural heritage from when we were born. It doesn't mean that other places are worse person. It's just, they're different. And I guess that's my recommendation for people is go out, experience what you can and appreciate the differences just because that's why you want to go out and see things. If it's all the same, there's no reason to go abroad. Right. It doesn't even matter if it's your own home heritage or not. For example, you don't have German blood, but you felt at home in Germany. You, you've gone back repeatedly. You can make wherever you are home. I'm not ethnically Estonian, but I felt at home there and they welcomed me there. Home is where you make your home. What I'm getting from our conversation is this sort of give and take whereby you're bringing something as an immigrant or a traveler even to your, your destination and then you take something and it becomes a part of you. And in every exchange that you have with people, there's that opportunity for generosity, for understanding, for communication, and sometimes even just observation. I really like that you brought that into the conversation because it really does make me think back, you know, when we traveled in Europe, it's just nice to go to some of these plazas or meeting areas and just sit and watch and interact on a natural basis. And it's almost like when you actually sit Still, that's when you become part of. And I think in our present day, things are just moving so fast. Everything's like, what's next? What's next? What's next? Lots of distractions. And being in that state of observation, right? And being able to accept and give the gratitude. In those experiences, those are the ones that I find more valuable as I kind of retrace some of the memories of my travels. Exactly. They become more personable. 
personal as well, because it's something that's on a direct level. It's not superficial. It's not just the checklist. Okay, I've been to the Louvre and I've seen the Mona Lisa. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but that shouldn't be the end game, so to speak. You talked about bringing something home with you, but the opposite is also true. I think we're also ambassadors for our cultures when we go abroad and show people the good side of how we are. Absolutely. I did settle. I got married. I have a, a career. And having a family does take up your time. I was overseas for close to seven years, I think. And that's, to me, a luxury. It's, that's, those are memories you can't take away. And you mentioned career. Do you think that those seven years abroad have helped you in your career? In, in some degrees, yes. I do work with the public. And at times, I work with people abroad or people, foreigners who come to us. And I mentioned being an ambassador. I think yeah, having been abroad, you kind of build bridges that way. And I met somebody, basically my counterpart from Slovenia. And I, I greeted him in Slovenian and he was pleased. I said, yes, I've been to Ljubljana and it, it breaks down barriers and it definitely makes us as a culture, as a country, seem less stereotypical. I think people have the impression that Americans only speak English and they'd never left the country and everything has to be their way or whatever. But then to meet somebody who not only knows where you're from, but you know, has been there and can actually greet you or as, as you said, you taken something from that culture with him as I left. I think that goes far. It definitely brings people closer together. It does. Martin, it's, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. It's always fun with you, Santiago. I really like Martin's attitude towards travel and living abroad. If you go someplace expecting things to be the way you want them to be, you're more likely to be disappointed than if you go someplace to see things how they are. I also like how he appreciates the moment since you really don't know when or if you'll be back to a certain place. Finally, his perspective that you can make wherever you are home is a great way to view any move. To honor his home while he lived in Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, I'm playing a song by Evocatif, a duo from there. The song is called Stranded and was written by Mark Varlashev, source evocative music. The song is from 2023, so it has more of a modern feel than when we were there. I think it highlights Martin's point that some places go through dramatic changes and we're both grateful to have had the opportunity to experience history in the making. I hope you enjoy the song. For more information about this show, visit www.immigrantsjourneys.fm. <laughs>